So what we're going to do right now is we're going to jump into what we started about two or three weeks ago, which was a series going through the book of Revelation. And uh, so if you guys would not mind opening up to the book of Revelation, we're going to begin. Uh, one of the things that we started from the very beginning of this is the book of Revelation is one of those books that has the tendency to create a lot of confusion for people, as well as cause people to um, sometimes be nasty, be a little bit argumentative. Um, and of course, that stems from people knowing for sure exactly how to interpret the book of Revelation, which reality is as certain as I think I may be in my own particular observations and understandings about the book of Revelation, I'm certainly not going to fight with anyone over those. Um, there are certain hills that we will not fight and die on. There are certain hills which we will fight and die on. Um, I won't die nor divide over interpretations of the book of Revelation. Unless you're somebody that has very strong opinions about the book of Revelation, you like to argue with people and have cheesy websites that state who the Antichrist is, I'll disagree. Um, but for the rest of us, let's continue in sort of an amiable type of way in which we love each other, we serve one another, we love God. We try to keep the central theme of the book of Revelation, the central theme, which is Jesus. John starts off the very first verse by saying this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we want to make certain that as we look at the book of Revelation, that we look at it through the lens that it is about Jesus Christ. And there's a specific reason why John wants us to see the book of Revelation superimposed with Jesus as the lens over it by which we see it. It's because he's writing to a group of people scattered abroad throughout the ancient Roman world, first century, that were during the time of the reign of an emperor by the name of Domitian, who were under great persecution. And these people were wondering where God was. These people were going through tough times. They were finding themselves in great uh, difficulty and hardship, great tribulation, though not the great tribulation. And John writes to these people, uh, characterized by the seven churches, uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation, which we'll see in a moment, and he writes to these people to offer to them hope. And curiously enough, the hope that John offers them is in the person of Jesus Christ. John recognizes that the most important, the most sustainable type of words and encouragement that John can offer them is Jesus Christ, is a glimpse or a vision of Jesus Christ as ruling and reigning over all things. So that's what we're going to basically be focusing on today, as well as as we continue to kind of plow through the remainder of this book of Revelation. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work in this really phenomenal book, and uh, let God begin to speak to us. Jesus, we thank you that really all things were created by you, all things are held together by you, all things will one day culminate in you. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first in the last, just like you said in the book of Revelation. And Jesus, we want to make sure that you are central to this book. Um, that alternative types of ideas and understandings about the book that leave people feeling fearful and afraid and paranoid. It, it was not the intent of your heart, Lord. It was to give encouragement, to give strength, to offer hope to people that found themselves confronted by a hostile world that was full of hate against you and full of hate against those who serve you. God, that we would just trust you, that we would look to you, and that we would see a bigger glimpse of you throughout this great book. 
So we commit ourselves in your hands, and we ask that, Jesus, that you would open our eyes and help us to see this book, to see it in the way that you want for us to see it, to see you in the way that you want for us to see you. So we commit our time in your hands, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, beginning at verse uh, 9, is where we're going to pick it up this morning, and John basically, again, continues writing. Uh, the first of uh, the book starts off with sort of the opening or the greeting or the prologue as a lot of scholars would look at. John continues to sort of extend his, well, or his, his uh, a greeting and his welcoming to them. So he goes on and the very first thing he says here in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom of the patient endurance that is in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I love about this is that we looked at a little bit with John. John was one of the 12 apostles. John was one of the close sort of inner circle of Jesus' uh, for lack of better words, elite type of close friends. Uh, remember, there were at least three guys that would always spend a lot of quality time with Jesus. This was Peter, James, and John. John was one of these guys. John was sort of like one of the younger brothers of Jesus. He was a very close companion, close friend of Jesus. Jesus uh, or John writes about himself as being the apostle whom Jesus loved. He had a very close, intimate fellowship, relationship with Jesus. And so what John does is he could have used all of that type of relationship, all of that type of uh, uh, scenario of the background to sort of leverage himself, to elevate himself in position, you know, to be like, hey, what's up, guys? I'm the Pope. What's up, guys? I'm the head honcho of all of you guys submit to me. It's not how John works. John actually states, I'm your brother. I'm one of you. I'm suffering just like one of you. He doesn't elevate himself to be someone of great importance or high respect or super high regard or honor. John just recognizes, I'm one of you guys. I'm, I'm in this fight with you guys. I'm on your team with you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys. We're in the trenches together living out the faith, following Jesus. And he goes on to say, sort of a three-word type of phrase. He says, I'm a partner with you in tribulation, in kingdom, in patient endurance that are in Jesus. And then he goes on and finishes his little section. He says, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. Most scholars believe, and a lot of church history basically would state, although it's not verified as fact, because it's sort of unbiblical uh, references, that John, as a pastor, was a faithful pastor all the way to the very end. In fact, at the time in which John had written this, it's believed that most of all of the other apostles had already been killed. Uh, Peter killed, uh, James killed, all of the other guys gone. Nathaniel, all of these guys just gone. And yet, John was somehow still alive. And according to the tradition was that John had gotten in trouble with the emperor Domitian. Domitian arrested him. John was thrown in a cauldron of hot boiling oil for the faith. John didn't die. So John's taken out of the hot cauldron of burning oil for whatever reason was still alive. Probably God had more things to do with John through John. I believe that John's body was probably just marred and scarred beyond belief, but he was still alive. And as a result of that, we're told according to the, uh, the history that John was then exiled to this island called Patmos. It was kind of the place where they would send uh, prisoners uh, to exile them, to keep them away from the rest of the public. And it was on this island called Patmos that John received visions from God. 
And then now he, as a faithful witness, testifies to the things that he had heard. John, as I said, was a good friend of Jesus. He was a close companion of Jesus, and he was an eyewitness of all that Jesus had done. And John is now sharing as an eyewitness account of what God had spoken to him. So what he goes on to say is he talks about, I'm a partner with you guys in tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. The next slide, I want to show you guys a few things because this sort of threefold description is really important. John purposefully describes it as such. It's a kingdom that's full of tribulation, but it's a kingdom nonetheless that one day we will observe, we will be a part of, we will be embraced by, we will be enveloped by. But until that day, until we finally arrive to that particular point, it's a season of patient endurance. And it's full of endurance because we haven't gotten it yet, we haven't received it yet, we haven't obtained it yet, and at the same time, we find ourselves under great tribulation, under pressure, under hardship. The word tribulation that he uses there is the Greek word philipsis, and it literally means to be pressed or pushed down, all right? Some of you had older brothers, and they would sit on you, and they would give you wedgies or noogies, and they would just give you pressure. And the idea, not too far from this, is John says, we are under great pressure. It's as if something, someone is sitting on us, on our souls, upon our hearts, upon our lives, we're being crushed. John's like, I'm being crushed. You're being crushed. This world is in a season as if birth pangs. We are going through moments of intense difficulty and hardship. I know that this probably does not relate to any of you. Because you're like, tribulation, hardship, pressure, what's that? Right? But you just got to bear with me for a moment. Some people have gone through these things. All right? Anyways, you get the idea. I'm just being sarcastic. The reality is, is that John's writing in a way that's just like us. We go through pressure. We go through tribulation, hardship. And John's saying, I'm your fellow brother in it. I'm going through it just like you are going through it. Or just like you will go through it. I'm in the midst of it with you guys. But then he goes on to say, it's part of the kingdom or basilia. It's a domain of a king, and the kingdom by which he's referring to is the kingdom which Jesus himself talked about. It's a kingdom by which one day will be in complete fulfillment. We will see it. We will know it. This is where some of the prophecies of the Old Testament, like in Habakkuk, as surely as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God uh, cover the earth. In other words, one day God will take this world that's broken, that's, that's not functioning properly, that's sick, that's full of hardship and pressure, and we are consequently in the crosshairs or the crossfire of the pressure and the hardship uh, brought on consequently by sin or because of sinful nature, sinfulness in this world. This world is under curse, if you would. That's why the things happen to us the way they happen to us. There is a curse there. But John, Jesus, Paul, all spoke. The prophets of the old, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, spoke of a day in which the kingdom of God will come. And it will be a good kingdom in which God will sweep up those who are faithful, who love the king. The kingdom, believe it or not, is for those who love the king. And those who despise the king, those who despise the king's rule, will be cast out. 
Jesus described it this way, as in outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus described that outside portion of the kingdom as being like into the portion outside of the walls of Jerusalem, a place called Gehenna, which is a place where essentially became a trash heap, a dump spot where people would pour over their trash over the sides of the walls. And there was a constant burning. The trash would be burning all the time. Smoke would be arising to heaven all the time. It was a place where the worm was like in an endless buffet line, constantly feasting on decaying flesh. And Jesus said, the kingdom that will one day come will be granted or gifted or given to the faithful who love me, the king, but to those who despise me, the king. They will be cast out into a place like not too dissimilar from Gehenna, a place of torment, a place of hardship and difficulty, of intense suffering. And what he's going to basically say is the kingdom, the way that the Jews would have understood the kingdom, the way that the early church would have understood the kingdom, was the kingdom sort of had this here and now fulfillment, meaning we're swept up into something that's that's beautiful and that's wonderful and that actually begins at the moment of our eyes being opened and salvation laying a hold of our hearts whereby we're changed. Rather than viewing God as something that we despise or we run from or we hate, now God opens our eyes and we see God the King as good and we love the King. And we're like Jesus when he says, my subjects, when they pray, they pray like this. God, let your kingdom Come on this earth now, because your kingdom's good. Jesus' point that people who love the king also love his reign. People that hate the king despise his reign. So the way that the early Christians would have understood this is that there's sort of a here and now fulfillment where it's begun. The kingdom has begun. It's spreading. It's moving. It's it's going across the earth by way of evangelists. Evangelist is literally somebody that would just speak forth the good news. We communicate it. This is done by all of us. Because the reality is, is that all of you guys are in ministry full time. Do you understand that? All of you are in ministry full time. You're like, I thought that's why I tithe. So that you can be in ministry full time and I can just sit here and judge you. No. It's actually not right. That's not the way it should work. Your job shouldn't be to critique me. Your job should be to be in ministry with me. We do it all together because we love Jesus. We love his word. We love his kingdom. We love the king. Is that making sense? So John's saying, I'm your fellow brother with you in the pressure, in the tribulation, in the hardship, working for the kingdom that one day will come, but in a sense is here already. But John says, because it's still coming, we wait for it with patient endurance. That's what he says. We hope. We look forward to it. We long for it. We realize that, that the hope of this kingdom, even though it's yet future, it's still in our heart. We have a sense. We have a glimpse of it. We hear echoes of it from Eden past. We know something of what it will look like because we catch little snapshots of it from the Bible, from Jesus, our good king. That if Jesus, who is so good, so kind, so loving, if the Jesus that was on the earth was the way that Jesus is one day going to be, which he is, 
It's going to be an amazing kingdom. That this is a king that everybody should see the value of honoring him and of loving him because he's not a despot. He's not a tyrant. He's not mean. He's not out to destroy. He's actually out to do what he says he was out to do, which is to bring life. He wants to bring life to you. So John's point is that we are in tribulation currently. We are part of this kingdom presently and we hope for this kingdom we do it through patient endurance here's another way in which that particular word hupomone uh, uh, appears in the new testament romans chapter 5 verse 3 says this more than that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance that word endurance is exactly what's used here so within the mindset of the early church they had this grasp this understanding of suffering that suffering actually produces within them this hope. This real, true, genuine, pure hope. And I have to be really honest with you. I think because we live in a culture that we've become so accustomed to so many freedoms, we've lost sense of this hope. In other words, we live in a culture, in a society that has learned how to deal with sufferings that frankly are not biblical. And what I mean by that is rather than letting suffering be like a river when you're thrown into it, tossed into it, take us to where it ought to take us, namely God, what happens is we try to get out of that river as quickly and as fast as we can by entertaining ourselves, by some sort of drug usage, whatever types of means or ways by which we can to somehow get out of the suffering. What I want to say to you is this, is that a lot of us, we waste our suffering. Sometimes God allows, or God does give, He allows the suffering in our lives so that the suffering produces exactly what Paul says. The sense of patient endurance, the sense of hope, the sense that this world in its current broken condition is not my home that one day God will make things right one day God will intervene one day God will come and he as judge he's going to use the example of a judge but like a judge imagine somebody who has been taken advantage of or defiled for many many years and they have been waiting forever to get an appointment with the judge to sit down with the judge and explain the situation that had happened. But for whatever reason, they keep getting bumped or postponed or the judge keeps going on break or whatever the case is, they just don't get their shot at court. It's as if Jesus is saying, one day, one day the judge will come. One day to all those who have had hope deferred will get a chance to sit before the judge and the judge will make all things right. And that's the great hope and endurance that arises in the soul of a believer that says, you know what, as difficult this world is, as hard as it is, as troublesome the things are that may be in this world, the reality is that one day the king will come. And that boosts our hope. It allows us to view things in a way that God's in control. God's working, God's moving, and through our suffering through our hardships, through the difficulties we find ourselves confronted with. 
And we ought not to waste it. We ought not to numb it. We ought not to move away from it. But we ought to let it produce within us the effect that it's meant to produce, which is a God-honoring, Christ-centered hope and endurance. And John says, I'm on that team. I'm on that team with you guys. We're moving forward in hope and patient endurance and tribulation because we're part of this amazing kingdom that we're watching unfold and we get to be a part of joining with the creator here and now and await the day in which he will finally come back and set all the wrongs to right. That's a great thing. John was a great pastor. John faithfully spoke forth what God wanted to speak forth. And interestingly enough, it's, 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 it's extremely Christ-centered. What I want you to see is this, is that the whole revelation that John gives is really centered around Jesus. It's Christocentric, if you want to use a big fancy word that you can get from any type of Bible software. It's Christocentric. Jesus is the center of it all. That's the way our lives should be. That's the way the church should be. If you lead a Bible study, that's the type of Bible study you should lead, is Jesus is the center of it all. That's how John writes. So as we go on from there, John's going to now begin to unveil for us some of these pictures of what Jesus is like, or what Jesus is like. And the way he does this is by way of revelation, John receives this vision, John sees something of Jesus, but he sees Jesus as resurrected, as living king, as living God. And so what he's going to do now in the next slide, he's going to give to us sort of a picture as to the glorified Christ. Before we jump into this, one of the, one of the things I want to say is this is that I think a lot of us have an outdated perspective of Jesus. What I mean by that is some of us, when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus usually in either one of two ways. Either as the baby Jesus in a manger, and we pray to him like little baby Jesus in a manger, like Ricky Bobby, or we see Jesus as glorified, or, or on, the, on the cross as suffering servant, Jesus, who had gone through great, intense difficulties and hardship, bleeding, broken, humbled. We see Jesus oftentimes in either one of those two, one of those two arenas. And what I want to say is this. If that is the extent of your vision of Christ, you got to update it. you got to update it. That's not the type of vision that John receives of Jesus. In fact, John receives of Jesus a vision of Christ that is where he is currently, where he resides presently, what he's like today. Some commentators have looked at this and said that what John's going to basically portray for us now is not so much what Jesus looks like, but what Jesus is like, what he's actually like. I'll give you an example. It describes Jesus as having a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think, could be wrong, but I don't think that when we go to heaven and we see Jesus face to face, I don't think we're going to be seeing a guy with a sword sticking out of his mouth. I think it's a picture. I think it's a metaphor. And I think it speaks forth something of what Jesus is like. Not what he looks like, but what he is like. So with that being said, I want for us to sort of catch a glimpse of what John sees. I actually see in the text, most commentators that I had read said, John reveals sort of an eightfold picture or metaphor of what John looks like or what Jesus looks like. I actually think most of them missed one of the 
one of the most prominent ones. It's actually the very first one. So as we look at this, I want to make certain that you and I, as people who are reading our Bibles, that we don't miss the big E on the I chart. All right? So John's going to basically give us the very first one, and here's what he says. He says, then I turned to see in verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one who was like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash. So the first thing that John basically points out is he recognizes that whoever this is, he's standing in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. We're going to find out towards the end of the chapter that the seven golden lampstands actually refer to the seven churches. And there's seven lights or seven stars that Jesus is holding in his hand. Again, at the very end of the verse, verse 20 or so, 19, it says that these stars represent the um, angels, or the actual Greek word is there, angelos. Some people have translated that as just simply being messengers. We don't know exactly who it is for sure, but some people think it could be the pastors. Some people they think they might be uh, angels, whatever the case is. But what I want you to notice is the most obvious, that Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven golden lampstands that represent the churches. I think the imagery is beautiful. And what it does for us is it pictures the reality that Jesus is very tightly, closely connected with the church. Jesus loves his church. Now I understand, I know we live in a culture that kind of thinks it's cool and hip to make fun of, to poke fun of the church or to go to the church, to just kind of be at sort of a standoff distance with the church, to criticize the church, to critique leadership within the church. And I'm not saying in some cases it's worthwhile. It's, you know, sometimes churches do crazy things that are worthy of, you know, critique. But what you need to understand, what you need to see, what you have to feel, is that Jesus loves his church. Okay, Jesus loves his church. And, and for us to live in a culture that is, it's just acceptable to critique, poke fun of, to caricature, to parody, all sorts of things. I just want to urge you to be careful about it with regard to the church. Yes, there's a lot of things about the church that are silly, that are crazy, that drive me nuts sometimes to be really frank with you. But the reality at the end of the day is that we are a group of people that have been redeemed by Jesus. Okay, I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago, and he hadn't been to a church for a very long time. He was having a hard time in life, and for whatever reason, God was doing some sort of work in his life. I sat down with him. I talked to him for quite a while, and he basically was all excited. He's like, I can't wait to go to your church. I'm super pumped to just, you know, meet some new people and, you know, get connected and make friends. And, and I basically asked him, I says, are you kind of hoping to make a lot of friends and become a part of sort of a community when you come to Calvary Slow? He's like, Yeah. Like, you know, I hate to be honest with you, man, but I just got to tell you what, Calvary Slow is going to let you down there, man. You're going to come. You're going to meet some people. They're not going to meet your expectations. They're going to let you down. They're going to bum you out. I hate to tell you that. I hate to just be the pessimist in your life. But the reality is, is that our church is really, it's, it's, we, I had said this before, Christians are non-Christians that have been shown grace. We are just like non-Christians that have been shown grace. God has shown favor to us. He's forgiven us. He's washed us. And what's happened now is in our lives, we just, we have a, a modification in our hearts whereby now we love Jesus. All right? It, it's as if 
God has taken our lives and he's pried our fingers off of the idolatry that we used to be connected with in the world. And now we love Jesus. But we oftentimes still have the bad habits that we used to have. But God's hopefully breaking us from those things. It's not as if Christians are sinless. Hopefully, I've said this before, we would sin less. But the reality is if you come to church and you have this you know, expectation that, ah, it's going to be awesome. People will actually be nice to me. It won't be like junior high. It'll be awesome. I, I hate to be really, really frank. You're just going to be let down here. If you're looking at the, you know, the pastor, like, oh, the pastor, he's a Christian. He loves Jesus. He's been a Christian for 20 plus years. He'll never let me down. I've got news for you. I absolutely will let you down. So you can just put that on the table right now and just be cool with it. I don't want to let people down. I don't think anybody else wants to let anybody else down. But we live in a fallen world, and we step on each other's toes, oftentimes inadvertently. And unless we have an understanding that the church, the church, I'm not talking about the little institution of people who sit around and try to, you know, coerce and judge and correct and set all sorts of rules and restrictions. I'm talking about saints, people that have been forgiven in their sin and brought into their relationship with Christ. Those people Jesus loves. They're part of a body, part of a gathering of saints who love Christ. Jesus is depicted as being in the middle of them. He loves his church. He loves his church. And it goes on, it says, and then I saw, I turn around, in the midst, verse 13, of the lampstands was like, one like a son of man. So the first thing I want you to notice that I think John points out is one like the son of man. This is one of the most obvious ones that I think oftentimes gets missed. For some reason, the very first sort of springboard into the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book is John wants us to understand in terms of getting a glimpse of who God is to help sustain the souls of those going through tribulation and hardship is he wants them to see that Jesus is the Son of Man or is like the Son of Man. But this phrase that gets used here is actually kind of an interesting phrase. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he uses this phrase of himself. Oftentimes Jesus would talk about himself in this particular manner. He'd say like, I, the Son of Man. So he'd refer to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, about 81 times throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses this particular phrase to define himself. The phrase actually comes out of the Old Testament, probably the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. I want to read this to you, so listen to it. Daniel 7 verse 9, Daniel also receives his vision, and in this vision, here's what he says, I looked, and there were thrones that were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. I want you to listen to some of the descriptions that's here, because it's, in a lot of ways, it parallels what we're going to read. And it says that his clothing was like white as snow. His hair was uh, as pure as wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued, came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him in the court, and they sat in judgment, and the books were open. In verse 13, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which should not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in John's vision, John sees this picture of somebody sitting on a throne, describes him as the Ancient of Days. But then there's this other guy coming, 
in the clouds of great glory. And whoever this is, he just simply describes him as there's one like a son of man. And whoever this guy is, the son of man, coming to the ancient of days, as he approaches the ancient of days, the ancient of days then turns to the son of man and essentially hands to him or offers to him all glory, all dominion, all power, all authority over all people's kingdoms, dominions. So when Jesus uses the phrase, son of man, there's no doubt that this is what Jesus has in mind. So you can imagine, all right, you're hanging out with Jesus, he just performs a miracle, somebody gets healed, and you got all these religious people hanging around that are not used to hanging out with such greatness, right? So here Jesus is like, ah, I did this, the son of man. Immediately, these guys were scholars. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was using their sacred texts in in a very kind of subversive way, saying, you want to know who I am? You really want to know who I am? Just look up Daniel. Just go to Daniel. Look up the passage. I'm the one who's coming in the clouds. I'm the one who receives from the ancient of days all glory, power, dominion, authority over kings, peoples, priests, yada, yada, yada. That's me. And what John's trying to say here is that this is Jesus. Now, don't miss the obvious. The word or phrase, son of man, just literally means someone, a man, who is born to a human being. It's literally what it means. So here's what I think John's saying. This is part of the great mystery of your redemption. That throughout all history, throughout all time, from whenever it all began existed God. God was not man. God was spirit. Jesus even describes the Father as spirit. The Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, they're, they're intangible. They cannot be touched, cannot be felt, cannot be observed with naked eye. At some point in history, 2,000 years ago, God, as a part of his redemptive, active, loving, caring, mercyful type of love enters into our world taking upon himself the form of man. John catches a vision of the future of the way Christ is now. Not the way he was, but the way he will be someday. And in heaven, ruling on the right hand of God, now God has a body. And I believe the reason for this is, although it's probably very a very small reason, I'm sure one day we will see it in full, or we will just marvel over it throughout all eternity future, but my guess is this, is that that will be the very firm, vocal, loud, constant, ongoing echo of the depth and the width and the breadth and the length of God's love to go to save you. That God would actually sacrifice something of himself to become a man. And for all eternity bear the body of a man. As a forever reminder of the price that he paid for you. So John says, I see one like the son of man. That's the depth. That's why John can say earlier that Christ who loves us, God loves you. Do you know that? God loves you. That he would go to such lengths to take upon himself a 
body, a human being. In other words, become like you to save you. That's it. The second thing that John goes on to say by way of this revelation, next slide we'll see. It says that he's clothed in a long robe, golden sash around his chest. Now oftentimes in that ancient culture, a long robe, especially with a golden sash, oftentimes indicated um, royalty or dignity or wealth or importance. Um, eh, You know, a long robe was kind of like designer clothing back then. It was like somebody that had a lot of money, a lot of you know, respect, uh, a lot of dignity. That was the guy who wore not just a long robe, but a long robe with a golden uh, belt around its chest. The third thing that he notices, he says that the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, okay? I realize we live in a culture today that tries to do everything we can to get rid of gray hair, get rid of old age. We are a culture that absolutely worships, as a God, youth. This is why people take Viagra. This is why people just spend millions of dollars on Botox, facelifts, because we hate getting old. We will fight it as much as we can. But believe it or not, back in that ancient culture, old age was actually viewed with great uh, respect, great honor. I'll give you a couple examples of this. In the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon writes, and he says this, gray hair, in uh, Proverbs 16, verse 31 Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. I love this. He's like, look, the old man down the street with gray hair, that guy is full of wisdom. He's got something to say. That's basically what Solomon's saying. Here's another one. Proverbs 20, verse 29. The glory of a young man is their strength, but the splendor of an old man is his gray hair. So the idea of Jesus being depicted with white hair or gray hair is a very clear indication that Jesus has infinite worth, infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, and he's recognized by that. The fourth thing says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. This is probably a reference um, to the fact that God's eyes see all things. In a Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, it talks about God's eyes seeing uh, with like a flame of fire. And it's probably this picture of God just looking through. You know, have you ever met somebody you just talked to and looking at you in your eyes and you're like, it's like they can look through my soul. It's kind of weird. It's sort of disarming, isn't it? Or alarming, maybe. It just freaks you out. All right? And I think John recognizes something about Jesus in this light. It's like his eyes are like a flame of fire. It just burns through my soul. He sees me. Do you know... That everything you do and everything that you are, God sees. We, we, we try so desperately to be somebody that we're not. We try so hard to put on a facade to act like somebody that we're really not. And I realize this starts at a very, very young age. But the reality is we don't outgrow it. We don't outgrow it. And even if you're a Christian, a lot of times some Christians don't even outgrow it. Because somewhere at the very core of who we are, we're just not happy with who we are. So we try to put on facades. We try to be people that we're not. We try to act in ways that we're really not. We buy things. We spend money to please people we really don't even like. Spend money we don't even have. And at the end of the day, we just, it's because something inside of us is just unsettled. 
We don't like who we are. We think we can fool other people. We sometimes even think that we can fool God. But God is not fooled. God knows who you are. This is why the most important thing, the best thing for you to do is to stop pretending with God. Stop putting up facades. Stop acting a particular part. And just be who you are in front of God. He already knows who you are. And he's already made provision for you through the cross for who you are. So the best thing I would encourage you with, just trust God. Give him your sin. Give him your defilement. He already knows what it is. No need to hide it from him. The fifth thing that he says is this. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. Um, This phrase also appears in chapter 2, verse 18. And I think it probably speaks of burnished bronze like strength or something very strong or powerful. The fact that it's on his feet is also significant because when you think of somebody back in that ancient day, especially if they were a warrior, one of the things they could do over their vanquished foes, so let's say if you, know, you won a victory and you defeated some bad guy, what you would do is you would go up to that bad guy and put your, your foot, you put your foot up on his head or on his neck. And just kind of rest yourself there. Because so you imagine the guy, he's not dead. He's on the ground. Wishing he was dead. But he's not dead. And he's there, like vulnerable, right? And he's got the foot of his victor over him, recognizing, I won. And I think the picture that's being communicated here to the early church that was suffering is Jesus has got feet like burnished bronze. He will be victorious. Nothing, nothing will overcome that. The sixth thing that, that it, the sixth thing that it goes on to say, his voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to um, the largest, world's largest waterfalls. It's in Brazil. It's called Iguazu Falls. And uh, they have this little area where you can actually go down. It's kind of a little bit of a catwalk, and you walk out there, and you kind of walk, and it's sort of like this horseshoe. It's almost like this. So like from there all the way there is like waterfalls. It's almost as close to me as it is from here to the wall. So you kind of walk out there, and once you're out there, it's, you get absolutely soaked, super wet, because there's just so much water. And uh, it, I was with some guys, we were trying to talk, and I just remember not even being able to hear anybody. For some reason, I had a cell phone, and I actually tried to call home while at Iguazu Falls. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't even hear anything. And it was so loud and so thunderous and so noisy, I just couldn't even hear anything because the sound was like this sound of rushing, mighty water. And John says, this is what the voice was like when I heard Jesus speak. The seventh thing that he says was that in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Again, the seven stars, uh, or seven angelos, uh, could be a reference to either the church leaders, pastors, or the angels over the church, however you want to look at it. Whatever the case is, they're in Jesus' hand. He holds these stars, these leaders, these people, these angelos, whatever they are, in the palm of his hand. This is how near, how dear they are to the resurrected, glorified Christ. He rules over his church. Uh, he, next thing he goes on to say, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. There's a lot of verses in the Old Testament this could have been taken from. Probably one of the main ones is like, for example, Isaiah 49 verse 2 says this, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
Um, the New Testament picks this up where Paul will kind of say something like this. He'll say like, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. But the picture, again, I think, not in terms of what Jesus looks like, but what Jesus is like, is that when Jesus speaks, his words have great power and authority and weightiness and have the ability to cut deep. Jesus has the ability to cut deep. And what I love about this is John's saying is that when Jesus speaks, when Jesus communicates, radical things happen. He's powerful, and his power gets unleashed as being depicted by one who has a mouth, or a mouth depicted by a sharp sword coming out of it. The last one is this. He says his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. So he basically describes Jesus as saying, when, the, when I looked at Christ, I could barely even, barely even look at him. Because the strength, the beauty, the glory, the effulgence of who he was just emanated from him that I could not even look at him. So great, so brilliant, so powerful, so mighty. And what John does now is he describes for us what his response was. So take a look at verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is sort of an echo of some other Old Testament passages. Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 23 for one. There's several other passages in Ezekiel that describe this. But Isaiah chapter 6, not 64, but 6 verse 4 actually also is another description of this. Where Isaiah sees this picture of Christ and Isaiah falls on his feet. Or falls on his hands and knees and basically just worships God. He's absolutely blown away. You know, sometimes we talk about Jesus in terms that I'm not certain how biblical they are. I'll give you an example. I think throughout the 50s in our country, there was a very strong breed of fundamentalism that was very prevalent within a lot of mainstream churches throughout America. Throughout the 60s, uh, throughout the 50s and the 60s. I think what had happened was it sort of created this kind of counter-reaction. In other words, it was a lot of heavy-duty doctrine without a lot of soul, without a lot of representation or love for God that was sort of the part of it. There was a lot of heavy-duty fundamentalism that sort of kind of made its way through mainstream America. But I think throughout the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was sort of this reaction against the hardcore fundamentalism especially throughout the late 80s and 90s, that sort of treated Jesus kind of like, like your boyfriend. Like you just got this great love affair with Jesus. He's there to kind of romance you and sweep you off your feet. And he's just like a boyfriend. You know, and the reality is, is I think what's oftentimes happened with that is I think that the core of it is sort of an idea to take Jesus out of the fundamentalism and Put feet onto him. Give him a heart. Put a soul into him and say, you know what? Jesus actually loves us. And I agree with that. I believe that the church needs to understand something of the fact that God wants to be intimate with us. I believe that's true. But I think at the same time, if we're not careful, there is a tendency to remove God from the position of pure holiness of where he is. So there's a balance for us to recognize God in the same way that John recognized God, that there is a sense when you see God that you are so absolutely in awe and words can't even describe that moment that you just sort of like John, fall on your feet in sheer amazement. But at the same time, Jesus immediately puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, John, don't be afraid. So there is an intimacy there. But I want to make sure for us as a church 
that we balance this, that we don't think of Jesus in exclusive terms like he's, you know, he's here to romance me, nor do we think of Jesus in terms of such far off, distant, austere holiness where we have no ability to access him because he's there and we're here and there's this massive gulf fixed between the two of us, but rather we see it in the way John sees it, that we have a proper response to who Jesus is by responding to him in a sense of awe. And yet at the same time, we allow room for Jesus to put his hand up on our shoulder and say, don't be afraid. I love you. And then Jesus goes on to give this description as we kind of wrap it up here. It kind of leads to the very last part where Jesus encouraged him. He says, but he laid his hand on him and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first, the last, the living one. I died and behold, I, I live forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell right there for the things that you have seen that are, what are those that are here that are going to take place after this? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, and the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, these are the seven churches. So what I think Jesus wants to convey to John in this intense moment is that I love you. Worship me, John, but I don't, don't be fearful of me. Be in awe. Have a godly fear that pulls you away from sin, that causes you to view me properly and correctly. But don't be afraid of me, John. And that's the words of Jesus to his saints, to the people who love him. The reality that I want to finish with in closing is this. Is that Jesus makes a statement. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. Meaning, I died, but I rose again. And then he finishes with this little statement. He says, I also hold the keys of death and hell, or of Hades and death. That phrase gets used time and time again throughout the book of Revelation and sort of ends at the last judgment where one day Jesus will take Hades and all of death and he will cast it forever into the lake of fire and it will be destroyed and obliterated forever. For some sense of torment forever, Jesus would describe it like this. This concept of hell, it's a place of burning, it's a place of torment, but it's a place in which I personally don't think Jesus wants any of his created order to go. He loves us, but at the same time, what he's dealing with, what he has to work with is people who actually, by way of sin, we have preferred other gods over the true and living God. We are idolaters in our heart. We worship false gods. We devote ourselves to these false gods. In this preference of preferring other things over to God, the Bible describes this sin. And the reality is is that Jesus steps into our world as a savior to rescue us from that, to save us from that, and to save us from the effects of where idolatry will lead us, namely hell. And Jesus says, I love you. I want to save you from that. I will become a man to save you from that. Sometimes people hear that. And I know that talking about hell is not popular. It's the thing that people don't want to talk about. They say, if you want to kill a church, it's like the anti-thing to church growth. I know all that. But I, if, if, I, if I live that, if I teach it, if I act like that, that would be an unfaithful pastor. I love you guys. At the end of the day, I'm accountable to God. And I want God to be able to 
recognize that this is a church, this is a group of people that understand and know that there are consequences to stiff-arming Jesus and preferring idols over him. And what happens is at the end of the day, Jesus will one day come and judge. He will set things right. Yes, he will rescue those who are faithful to him, but yes, he will also send those who are not faithful to him with the false prophet, with the beast, with death in Hades, into the lake of fire. And I know that sometimes people hear that, and they oftentimes think in their mind, I can't believe that God would send anybody to hell. But what I want for you to think about is the real scandalous thing is not that God would send people to hell, but the real scandal is that God would actually send his son into this world to save sinners. I understand punishing evil. Some of you, I wouldn't let into my house to hang out with my kids. All right? I'll go out to lunch with you. I'll drink coffee with you. I will never let some hang with my kids. I love my kids too much. All right? Sorry. But the point is, I'm protective of my children, just like God is protective of his children. And he realizes there are some who don't love his children. There are some who don't love him. And there will come a day when God will make things right, when God will set to order that which is broken. And the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the message that John brings, is that God is so great That he sent his son into this world to do exactly what the people to whom he's writing to are doing. Suffer. But Jesus' suffering was for nothing. And that's what John's saying. Is some of you, some of you will let the suffering lead to nothing. What I urge you to consider, don't waste your suffering. Don't let it lead to bitterness. Don't let your suffering lead to even more idolatry of self-pity whereby you become the center focus of everybody's sorrow and attention. Don't let your sorrow lead to that. Let the hardship, the trouble, the tribulation, the difficulty lead you to Jesus to produce endurance and faith and hope in a great God who also suffered, who died, who rose again. And just like John, who is faithful to the word of God, who suffered and died, will one day rise again. And we too will rise with Jesus who are faithful to love him, to suffer with him. We will die, but we will rise again. And that is really good news. That's what John's calling us to. The bottom line is this, is he realizes that the only thing that will sustain our souls in hardship and trial and suffering is a powerful God that also went through suffering, hardship, trial, death, and came out victorious. John's point is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's powerful. He's great. He's glorified. I pray that today some of you have got your upgrade to what Jesus really is like. That you would not just settle for what it used to be, what you think he was before, but that you would see him for what he is today. That he is a glorified Christ, conquering Christ. That the Christ that is today is no longer wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing a golden crown that represents authority. That the Christ that is today is not wearing a robe that was torn and bloody, but a robe that is white and glorious and has a gold band around his chest. 
but the Christ that is today, that once was weak and suffered and went through difficulty, today rules and reigns over all authority, all power, all might. And he's reaching out his arms saying, come to me, trust me, love me. I will forgive you. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We're going to give our praise back to Jesus today, right now. We're going to have an opportunity to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. I encourage you, give joyfully to God. Those of you that maybe don't go to this church, don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us to give joyfully back to God because God himself is a great giver. We get the joy of giving back to God. If you're here this morning, I encourage you that if you are not a believer, that you're not sure where you stand with God, if you're looking at your life and all that you see is the weight of defilement or sin that you feel, and you feel it on your shoulders, you feel it in your heart, I encourage you, give it to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Call out to Jesus. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to forgive you. At the end of the day, our sin is against Jesus. Against him and him alone have we sinned. We have an opportunity now to respond to Jesus who made us. To Jesus who will come again. To Jesus who currently is a ruler over all kings and over all authorities, over all power. I promise you this. You will see Jesus one day. Some of you who will bring it to your knees and you will worship him and you will love him and you will thank him some of you you will be ashamed I promise you you will see Jesus so John says I pray today right now that you would make in your heart where you stand today clear that you trust in him that you would love him that you would call upon him and cast your sin upon him cares for you. I'm going to pray. We'll respond. We'll give. We'll worship. We'll let God do what he wants to do here. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We love you. We look forward to the day that one day we will see you face to face. Some will be ashamed. Some will be cast in outer darkness. There will be weeping. There will be gnashing of teeth because they they knew they could have trusted you, they, but they didn't. They stiff-armed you. They loved their idols more than you. Some will run to you. Some will be overjoyed. Some will rejoice with loud singing and loud praise. Jesus, we can't wait till the day that we get to see you face to face. Allow us to worship you now. Having had a glimpse, a revelation from your faithful servant our brother, John.